Amen. Take your Bibles now, if you would, and turn to Genesis chapter 22. A while ago, I don't remember exactly when it was, but I mentioned that COVID had a significant impact on the girth of many of us, right? We're isolated at home, and what do we expect? Our desk is a little too close to the kitchen, a little too near the pantry, and the next thing you know, we're trying to find ways to sabotage the scale. Well, girth wasn't the only impact on us from COVID. A far more serious one, perhaps even longer lasting, has been loneliness, right? Loneliness that comes from the isolation, the social distancing. Too many of us, especially the younger people who are not used to that kind of isolation, suffered alone during the shutdowns and the fear of COVID, the sicknesses that came from it. Early on, Harvard Graduate School of Education and this group called the Making Care Common Project did a study of close to 1,000 people. Here's what they found, that about 36% of the people who responded reported serious loneliness. They described it as frequently, almost all the time, or all the time. This included 61% of young people aged 18 to 25, 51% of mothers with young children. Young adults, they found, also suffer high rates both of loneliness and anxiety and depression. According to a CDC survey, 63% of this age group are suffering from significant signs of anxiety or depression. One particularly striking comment is this. About half of lonely young adults in our survey reported that no one in the past few weeks had taken more than a few minutes to ask how they're doing in a way that made them feel like the person genuinely cared. In other words, they felt unseen, right? Abandoned, alone. Even with all the electronic access that we think gives us presence with each other, FaceTime and Zoom. I mean, you know, there's a Zoom. There's probably in the future going to be a malady called Zoom withdrawal or something. No, Zoom fatigue. How many of you have Zoom fatigue? Yeah, yeah. There's only one meaningful solution to loneliness, right? And that's a vital connection to others. A connection where we are known where we're seen, where we're understood, and where we're cared for. It was not good that Adam was alone, so God made Eve. But even more basic than this and important than this vital connection to another is a true and lively connection to the Lord. Adam had Eve, but he still needed God. Others may fail to be present at a critical time when we need them, but the Lord never misses an opportunity to be present with His people when we need Him. But as humans, even as converted ones, loneliness happens. A sense that I'm not seen or I'm not understood or I'm not cared for. And it seems to be most unbearable when we're in the midst of grievous trials, right? How do we endure the trials and tests without resorting to things like isolating or addictive behavior or even having loneliness? We need the assurance that though we might be absent from our people, unseen by them, God is never absent from us. So we turn to our text for today, part two of the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac by the command of God. Genesis 22, verses 9 through 19. You, you, we know the story. This is a severe test for Abraham. Now, one way perhaps to understand last week's text was this question, what does God expect of us? Well, when he brings a test in our lives... 
He expects us to persevere under it and trust Him while we're going through it, recognizing that He is working in our souls. But today we have a different question. Today the focus of our text is not on the actions of Abraham, but on the actions of the Lord. This is a gospel text for us this morning because it records God's gracious and merciful action. Of course, we we do see Abraham do what God has commanded, but the scenes all point in a different direction. They highlight the Lord of the covenant and how he is with us in our trying times. Today, our question is this. What can we expect of God in our trials? What can we expect of God in the midst of our trials? Well, the text gives us three things. That we can expect that he will see us in our trials that He'll provide for us in our trials, and that He'll bless us through them. What can we expect of God in our trials? That He'll see us, He'll provide for us, He will bless us through them. In short, we'll see all the ways that the Lord was present and active here with Abraham and Isaac. In all of those ways, we who are redeemed in Christ can expect God to be present. So let's read Genesis 22, beginning in verse 9. When they came, that is Abraham and Isaac, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And the angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father, you act, you see, and then you act, you save, and you provide. Lord, in all of these ways, we pray that we would be uh, reminded, converted over even, to a deep assurance that you are with your people. Even in the midst of our trials, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our first point is this. God sees us in our trials so we can have the assurance that we do not walk alone. Verse 9, and they came to that place that God had said to him. Then Abraham built an altar, and he laid out the wood, and he bound Isaac his son, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood, one after the other. No commentary from the narrator just methodical action. Moses gives Abraham's actions to us matter-of-factly. But two things stick out here. Number one, he bound Isaac. You find that strange? At that point, it probably got very real to Isaac. 
as well as to Abraham. It had to be in Isaac's mind that he wasn't the lamb. Uh, Rather, there wasn't a lamb. He was the sacrifice. In the later sacrificial law of Moses in Leviticus 1, there's no requirement to bind the burnt offering sacrifices. Indeed, it doesn't make sense to do so because the animal was killed, then sectioned, then put on the altar and offered. But here, however, Abraham takes the time to bind Isaac. Now, keep in mind that Isaac was at least a middle, a middle teenager here. Some think he could be as old as 30. So as if to give this event, this moment, the, the prime place in all the Old Testament, this is the only time the verb bound is used in ritual sacrifice. In fact, the Jews, even to this day, uh, call that day akedah, which is the word bound in Hebrew as a special day. Number one, Isaac was bound. Number two, he allowed himself to be bound. He'd already asked the question about the sheep for the offering, but we don't hear him ask any other questions like, "Um, my father, what exactly are you doing? Abraham was elderly, and Isaac probably easily could have run away or resisted his efforts, but he did neither. He consented. This should remind us of how Isaiah describes the Lord Jesus as he went to his cross. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. So the slow, even maddening action continues. Look at verse 10. And Abraham stretched out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. So Isaac is now bound on top of the wood. Abraham reaches out for a knife. The only other place that kind of knife is mentioned in the Old Testament is in Judges 19, where a man carves up his dead concubine into 12 pieces. This was not a knife that you used in any other way but to slaughter. And no one can imagine what was going on in these two minds at that moment. But one thing we know, that God said nothing to Abraham or Isaac since they left. Can you imagine the pleading going on in Abraham's mind? Certainly Isaac's, where are you, Lord? Don't you see what is about to happen? Verse 11. The angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, saying, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Behold, it is I. And the angel said, You must certainly not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know, or now I see, that you fear God as you have kept, not kept back your son, your only son from me. The angel of the Lord speaks again. You might remember this is how the Lord Jesus often presented himself to his people before his incarnation. He calls out, urgently and puts a halt on the sacrifice. But why? Look what it says. For I know or I see that you fear God as you have not kept back your son, your only son from me. He recognized in Abraham's actions his fear of the Lord. Fear of God in this, in this context is, is utmost obedience no matter the personal cost. He was in the process of giving up all that he valued to the Lord. That's the definition of a burnt offering, a total sacrifice. God makes it very clear that the lad is not to be harmed in any way. A welcome statement, I'm sure, to Abraham as well as Isaac. God sees us in our trials so we may have assurance that we don't walk alone. God seeing us is far more than he is observing us or he is knowledgeable about our situation. It is him acting for us in the midst of our difficulty, just like he did here. The Lord isn't a disinterested party, barely moved by the pain and suffering of his people. 
the Lord was fully engaged with Abraham. As a good father. The Lord was fully engaged with Abraham along the entire way, even though he was silent. Beloved, listen, right? Isn't the silence from heaven often deafening? The Lord was with Abraham even though he was silent. The fact that he spoke to Abraham the moment he reached for that knife isn't just lucky timing. He was there. He was watching. He was active. You remember what Isaac asked Abraham along the way. He noticed the fire in the wood, but no sacrifice. Abraham's response was, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. In our text for today, that same word, provide, is used, but if you look in the ESV in the footnote, it's given a different translation. It's actually the translation that's most often used for that word, see. So we could say from verse 8, God will see to it himself that there's a lamb for a burnt offering. We speak this way ourselves, right? We say, see to it. If there's, some, if there's some task that someone has to do, we say to that person, see to it that that task is finished. That whole idea of seeing to it includes not just observing the details of the task, but actually doing it, being active in it. Beloved, for God to see something in Scripture has special meaning. It doesn't mean that God is simply observing, but that He observes in order to act. Here are three examples from the scriptures. Number one, Genesis 16, 13. You might remember that part of the story of Abraham. Hagar and her son were pushed out of the house by Sarah after God rescues them in the desert. Reflecting on what God had done, that he had been watching her, she said this. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. His seeing Hagar wasn't just observing. He saw her. He saw her need. He acted for her need. Number two, Exodus 3, verse 7. This is concerning the Hebrews. They're suffering in Egypt. The Lord spoke to Moses about a series of actions that would happen that first began with God seeing. The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I see, I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them, to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God's seeing of us is is intimate purposeful, thorough. Last one is Psalm 9, verse 13. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. How, how could the psalmist make such a prayer, specifically that the Lord be gracious to him, unless he believed that the Lord was watching him? Beloved, God sees his people, and his seeing is his acting. Strangely, though, though we might know this truth, might treasure this truth, Too often when we're suffering, or when we don't get what we work for, or we get rebuked, or we're lonely, we think God is no longer watching over us. Beloved, this this is where the beauty of Reformed theology is so helpful. God is in covenant with us. Do Do you know what it means for God to be in covenant with us through Jesus Christ? A covenant is a binding, governed relationship with parties and conditions and consequences. A covenant comes with obligations for both parties. Now, we live in a covenant, right? By God's grace. We're sustained in it by His grace, and yet we're obligated to live a certain way in that covenant, right? We know the verse from 2 Corinthians, Christ died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Our obligation is clear, but what obligation does the Lord have? He must see to it 
for those who love him, that all things work together for our good. That is what he has agreed to hold himself to in this covenant. Since this is his promise to all of those who are in covenant with him through Christ, can he keep it and take his eyes off his people? No. He has no one to oppose him in keeping this promise. He's got nothing shifty within himself that would convince him to waver from this promise. There's nothing that can hide us from him. He's obligated himself out of love for us to do good to us. He cannot be faithful to his covenant obligations and ignore us at the same time. Indeed, Paul says he cannot do that. He reiterated to Timothy that faithful he is, faithful to us he will be. This is how Abraham took the steps of obedience, even though it meant the death of his most cherished child. He knew God was watching, and though he didn't know how, he knew the Lord would see to it that Isaac lived. Beloved, if you belong to Christ by faith, he always sees you and is always with you, especially in your times of testing and trial. I know there are times when in in the midst of our tests and our trials, we feel alone or we feel isolated. Our prayers are unanswered as far as we can tell. The difficulty persists or it increases. We exhaust all of our efforts. We just don't know what to do. Times like that, we must remember the covenant of the Lord, the covenant that He has sealed with us by the blood of His Son, The heart of that covenant, Jeremiah 31, 33, is this, I will be their God and they shall be my people. God's declaration and commitment to the covenant he's made with us in Christ is not changed by our circumstances. The fact that there are clouds outside and that it obscures the sunlight does not mean the sun is not there. The sun is always there. How much more is our God seeing and acting for us? Though we might not feel it, It only takes a moment to reflect upon the ways he has been with us. And even if you can't make your mind reflect upon the ways that he's been with us, when you come in here, just look at what's set on the table. That we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Beloved, for God to see means he will act for our help and his glory. But in our next point, this action to help is made more explicit. Look at verse 13. And Abraham lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, a ram behind him was caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham walked to it and took the ram and made it into a burnt offering and offered it instead of his son. No sooner had the angel stopped speaking that Abraham looked up and behind him he saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. This is so important. To worship the one true God, sacrifice is required. Payment for sins must be made. The wrath of God has to be satisfied. Abraham couldn't simply take his son off the wood and burn the wood. That would not have been a worship offering to the Lord. There must be a sacrifice. Even Isaac recognized that on the way to the site, right? Asking his father, where's the lamb? Once again, the Lord saw to it that there was the sacrifice so that Abraham and Isaac might draw near to him. So he unbound his son, retrieved the ram, killed it, cut it up, burned it as a worship offering to the Lord. Did you see the key phrase there? Instead of his son. This is a hugely important phrase. Here's the first instance in the scriptures where the death of one is received by the Lord on behalf of another. This is a prequel 
to the Passover. You remember the Passover, right? Lambs were slain on behalf of the people. The blood was mopped on the doorposts on the outside, and the angel of death saw the blood and moved on. Later in Exodus 13, after they had left and God was giving Moses the instructions for the Passover, he said this. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and beast, is mine. For the people to keep their firstborns of man and beast, the Lord had to be paid a price, a sacrifice. But of course, this isn't just a prequel to Passover. This is a prequel to the cross. So this combination of words that we find in our text, sea and burnt offering and ram, later comes to be closely associated with the Day of Atonement. Again, God was giving us a picture here of what is true about all of those who put their faith in Christ, a sacrifice for a sinner, that the sinner might be made holy. Look at verse 14. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will see. For the second time in in this larger text, we have that same word, see. And as before in verse 8, it could be translated here as provide. That's clearly what the Lord has done. And as we've always already considered, the Lord's seeing is always accompanied by his providing. But in order to memorialize this place, this site, beloved, was believed later on to be where Solomon built his temple. In order for him to memorialize that place, Abraham named it, the Lord will see. Seeing is providing when it comes to the Lord. What Abraham and Isaac needed so that all worked together for their good was a substitute sacrifice for Isaac. That's precisely what the Lord provided with this ram. God's provision that proves we do not walk alone in our trials comes to his people in two ways. It's nice and warm in here, isn't it? It's glorious. And my heater's not even on. God's provision. saying. In, in a far more sublime way than my comfort. The first of the Lord's provision for us to consider is our justification in Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. In other words, the greatest provision God offers to his people is a sacrifice that provides freedom from the guilt and power of our sins, satisfying the wrath of God. Justification, says the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is this, an act of God's free grace where he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Beloved, in every way that we need provision from God to be saved from his wrath, the Lord Jesus provided by his life and his death and his resurrection. What does the Bible teach? Mark 10, 45, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, the Father made the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in the Son we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins on his body, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. These, beloved, are scriptures to commit to memory. In them we read, the all-seeing eye of God sent his Son in our place to that altar of sacrifice, the cross. He, the sinless, sacrificed for the sinful so that we, the sinful, might see God. Beloved, what provision or benefit might our justification bring to us 
in a time of testing. You understand the question? Uh, to be justified in God's sight, what benefit does that bring to us in the moment of testing? Well, since I'm justified, this test or this trial proves to me that I belong to Jesus because I'm only filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Since I am justified, the test or the trial, it's not God's punishment. What does Hebrews 12 say? This is the discipline that comes for my discipleship. Since I'm justified, the test or the trial is purposeful. We saw this last time. It pries my hands off sin. It makes me more receptive to grace. It helps me to obey the scriptures. Since I am justified, this test or the trial allows me to be comforted by the church. I belong to the church and can help find help there in my time of need. Our justification alone is sufficient proof that our God is with us when we're burdened by trials. But as expected, He does so much more. His provision, secondly, for our justification, in addition to providing for our justification, He also provides for our sanctification. Those three gifts, I talk about them all the time. What are they? The Word, the Spirit, and the church. We have God's Word, which explains God's purposes for us. This is a tremendous gift that we have. By it, we are tutored in the doctrines of grace. We're rebuked and instructed. It's a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. But more than that, it's the Spirit. The Spirit takes God's Word and makes it effective in our lives. But He Himself, the Spirit, is our ever-present help in times of trouble. Jesus said this in John 14. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Beloved, that I will come to you is in the person of the Holy Spirit. He says further, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What more do we need to hear in the midst of our trials than that? But that peace He has left with us is not some random principle out there. It is the Spirit deposited in our souls. He is the Spirit of peace. But lastly, the church. What a gift that the church is for our sanctification. The church is where we learn to live faithfully as we watch saints who are older than us do it in front of us. The church is where we're comforted by God sometimes the only place we're comforted. The church is where we're rebuked for our sins, or we should be, so that we might flourish. The church is gathered by the Spirit, strengthened by the Spirit, used by the Spirit to make all things that happen to us be for our good. Beloved, the provision of God, the proof that He sees us in our trials, has made us sons and daughters of God by grace through faith, but further tutors us by the Holy Spirit using the Word of God in the midst of the church. You might not see immediate relief in your times of trouble. But when you step in here, you can. So we've hinted at this all along the way, but trials in God's hands ultimately bring blessing to we who have to endure. That's our third point. God blesses us through our trials, demonstrating his goodness. Look at verse 14 again. As it is to this day, the mount, on the mount, the Lord will be seen. This is the last occurrence of that word, see, yet it's different than what we've seen so far. Here it has that future sense, but it isn't that he will see us, but that he will be seen. 
that is, he will be glorified. What's exciting about this is what it will be in us that will cause him to be seen. You following? What is it? If the Lord will be seen, what, what is that that will uh, turn people to see the greatness of our God? Look at verse 15. The angel of the Lord called out to Abraham from heaven a second time, saying, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not kept back your son, your only son, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your offspring. As the stars of the heavens and as the sand on the seashore, your offspring will possess the gates of his enemies. In this passage, we have amazing, redemptive, historical promises once made to Abraham, not repeated, that have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled. Incredible promises that God says, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. God has made promises in Genesis before this one, but here in order to add the most gravity possible to what he will bring about, to give us the most certainty that what is going to happen, he swears by his own person as the covenant Lord to bring it about. But look what he says, because you've done this. This is interesting, right? The Lord had been given, giving Abraham unconditional promises up to this point, right? Not tied to his behavior. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17 contained promises that God would act simply because he said he would. But here, he ties the fulfillment of his promises to Abraham's faithful actions, his perseverance, and his obedience. Well, there is no conflict here. The beneficence of God, His generosity and goodness, it comes to His people out of His love for us, period. But how has He chosen to deliver that goodness to us? Normally, by our obedience. This is what Samuel told King Saul. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Normally, not always, but normally, the way to open the treasure trove of God's promise is obedience to his word. This is especially meaningful in the midst of tests and trials, right? That we know at the end of our perseverance is blessing. In this context, what was unlocked to Abraham is incredible and eternal. He says, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your offspring. Genesis 12, verse 2, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Genesis 17, verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. But this is even grander. He says, greatly bless, greatly multiply, or literally, I will bless and bless you. I will multiply and multiply your offspring. He uses the stars of the sky and the sand on the shore to give Abraham an illustration of the extent of of his promise. While in the two other places the Lord had made this promise, here it's amplified, it's extended. God has incredible things in store for Abraham and his offspring. He says, your offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. This is new. You might notice the Lord is speaking about a singular offspring. And Abraham does have descendants who possess the gates of their enemies, David and Solomon. But even those kings were types of the king of kings who was to come. Psalm 23 speaks to David's victory, but preeminently Christ's over his enemies. In that context, Father, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. 
Paul makes this explicit in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And lastly, again, as in Genesis 12, verse 3, verse 18 restates God's intention to bless the entire world through the descendants of Abraham. All the nations of the earth will be blessed in your offspring because you obeyed my voice. Now, I mentioned that these promises, except the one about possessing the gates of your enemies, these promises we found before in other covenant statements. What I find interesting is the existence and the placement of these verses here. Why these verses here? I mean, they restate some things that, for the most part, have already been stated. Why do it again? I believe, once again, the Lord wants us to see the connection between our obedience, especially under trial, and His goodness in rewarding us after. Beloved, Abraham's test was not for nothing. Do you ever wonder that about yourself? A car accident that, where you don't get to share the gospel, you know, or you get fired, or, or you get sick. And they're just, what's the point? Abraham's test was not for nothing. The Lord didn't meet up with Abraham afterwards and just kind of look at him and go, yep, he, did, he didn't do that. Our obedience to God is his due, to be sure, right? It's what's required of us in the covenant. But God's goodness, his covenant love for us, doesn't just expect our perseverance and our trials, but also rewards our faithful endurance. In other words, he saves his people from our sins, a gift but then, e- even though persevering in our trials is just our part of the bargain, He still rewards us for faithful endurance. This is why this text is in this place. So Abraham and all after him would see this dynamic. Our great God blesses our obedience and faithful endurance just because He chooses to do so. It's like getting a sucker from the dentist after he fills a cavity. No, seriously, growing up, I remember a dark wood paneled dentist office with a small pirate chest on the floor. I don't know if mom remembers this or not. You do? Yeah, she does. How about that? After the dentist finished his necessary torture on me, I could go and open the chest and get a sucker. I always look forward to that. Why? Why? Why would the dentist do that? The dentist was generous. He knew that coming to the dentist was hard for a little guy like me. Sitting in the chair was my part of the deal. Him doing his work was his. It should end after mom pays the bill. But still, he gave me a reward. I come back to the name of that mountain. The Lord will be seen. How will the Lord be seen? For his incredible generosity in blessing us for our faithful endurance. You following me? Jesus Christ is truly the gift that keeps on giving. You've heard me cite this verse to you again, but I will do it forever. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, which is more than we could possibly imagine. And certainly enough, the verse doesn't end, right? It continues on. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And what will be the means by which he will give us all things? Our faithful endurance in times of testing, just like Abraham. But there's more. We see this dynamic in how the author of Hebrews talks about the Lord's mindset as he walked to Calvary. Listen, listen closely. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. He's talking about being burdened, being living in a time of trial. And he says, let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus saw the reward of God. He persevered in the trial. He despised the shame, and the reward was that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you hear it? Run with endurance. Look to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, and he got the reward, seated on the right hand of God. And you and I, in him, will get the reward that he has earned for us. And he does this. Our Father does this because he's in covenant with us because he gives steadfast love and mercy, because he loves us. So what can we expect from God in our tests and trials? He sees us, but more than that, he provides for us so that all, all we need works together for our good, but more than that, he blesses our faithful endurance. All of these promises, all these truths for Abraham, were very real. The knife in his hand, the sun bound on the wood. If you've got kids in Kids Quest, you can go collect them now. Now's the time. These things were very, very, these were just propositions for Abraham. These were very real. And likewise, Jesus has given to you and me the supper, baptism, so that when we read these promises, we've got visuals, uh, Calvin called these visible means of grace, visible words. That's what it was, visible words. So that you and I don't just have to think necessarily about the promises of God. We get to hold them and taste them and consider them. Beloved, this supper is for all who put their faith in Christ. If, you've gonna, if you're going to serve, brothers, please be seated with me up here. This meal is for all who put their faith in Christ.